Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Titus 2, 11 through 15 is going to be our text this evening, Titus chapter 2. What a, what a rich text that we have here tonight <clears throat> discussing grace. And really we see grace that is truly greater in this passage. This passage deals with the doctrine of grace in the life of a believer. Your life should be changed by the power of saving grace. That's what we see throughout this text tonight. And so let's begin with a reading of our text. Verse 11. And God's word says to us as people, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you humbly this evening, desperately aware of our need for your grace. Even now, as we open your word, we pray not for more willpower, but for more of your grace as we seek to apply these truths to our lives, that we would go away changed, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers also, in Jesus' name. And for his sake we pray, amen. As we begin in our text this evening with verse 11, it's important to understand the context that precedes this passage. Paul has just finished giving practical exhortations to Christians for how they ought to act. In verses 2 through 10, Paul clearly lays out characteristics that should be the mark of an individual who has been genuinely saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So then as we begin in our text, we see this word for. Uh, This word indicates that the previous context will directly inform the interpretation of the coming verses. This word for is used because Paul intends to give a theological foundation for the practical instructions given in verses 2 through 10. And I'm I'm thankful for um, Dad giving just kind of a brief overview there of verses 2 through 10, uh, because I debated kind of going through that, but I figured, oh, he's going to speak that message, and I I probably won't need to review the context very much. But so that, that is exactly what that section is going over though. Verses 2 through 10 are the practical instructions of how grace ought to look, how grace manifests itself in the life of a believer. Then verses 11 through 15, this passage is also incredibly practical, but it's also deeply theological. And so we see Paul kind of walking this tightrope of deep theological truth, but also very practically applying this to the life of of the believer, in a sense, he's saying your lives should be marked by these characteristics laid out in verses 2 through 10 because of these theological truths given in verses 11 through 15. In verses 11 and 12, as we just begin our text, we see that true conversion is marked by changed living. True conversion is marked by changed living. 
In the two verses that open our passage, the Apostle Paul begins by giving his audience a brief soteriological treatise. The message is simple. God offers salvation to all people through grace, and this grace demands that we live lives transformed by the gospel. And so as we think about that's a simple message, but we could say easier said than done, right? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This is the very first phrase that opens our passage. This word grace is the Greek word charis. It's used throughout the New Testament, and it describes God's undeserved kindness to humanity through the gift of salvation. Paul also clearly communicates that this gift of salvation is made available to all mankind. We see that in the opening. Paul is not advocating for universalism here. He's not saying that grace has appeared, and so everyone is saved. Everybody's going to heaven. That's not the idea of this passage, and we'll see that very clearly worked out as we continue. But we see, let's focus in here on this phrase, has appeared. The phrase has appeared clearly indicates that at some point the grace of God was made known to mankind. Of course, hopefully we understand that Paul here is actually personifying the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So the grace of God appeared to all mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's giving here a clear gospel presentation. The appearing of the grace of God through Jesus Christ speaks to the salvific work of Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death on the part of sinful humanity. This saving work, clearly effective and sufficient for the sins of humanity, must be accepted, however. This is not universalism. And we'll very clearly see that in the coming verses. Let's look down at verse 12. This grace that brings salvation for all people is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So training us, Paul begins verse 12 by emphasizing the power of the gospel to change. Notice the language used by Paul here. He uses the the Greek word peduo. This is actually where we get our English word pedagogue. Okay, it means to teach, to instruct, to educate. Interestingly, Paul actually uses the present tense of this word. This is indicating that as believers, this should be an ongoing process. There must be a continuous conscious effort on the part of a believer to grow. Then we see, as we begin to kind of break down verse 12, we see that this work of grace really manifests itself in two ways. The first way is stated negatively. The second way is stated positively. So we could say that grace teaches us two things. First of all, it teaches us what we shouldn't do, but grace also teaches us what we should do. So this first way is the negative way. It teaches us what we should not do. This phrase could be literally translated, the grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Once again, we see there must be an active fight against the flesh on the part of a believer. You who were once dead to sins now live to righteousness. This is the idea. Prior to receiving this gift of grace, Scripture teaches that you had no choice but to live in sin. Now, by grace made available, through the gift of salvation, you're called to live to righteousness. As we think about this pastoral epistle of Titus, I think you'll see, even in tonight's text, you'll see several uh, parallels to other pastoral epistles. We know there's three. There's First and Second Timothy, and then this book here, Titus. 
I think uh, this passage is in some ways parallel to 2 Timothy 3. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing this book to Timothy to encourage him to be faithful in the face of opposition, faithful in fighting against false teaching. And as he writes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul's warning Timothy to beware of godless men. He literally concludes saying, these people have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Do you live in this way? I think so often it's easy as Christians to live with an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. If so, if you do live this way, you're exhibiting characteristics of godlessness. Do you claim grace that's received as salvation, but, the, but ignore the sanctification process that should be brought on by that grace? So now with this in mind, Paul is moving on to the positive impact that grace should have. This is at the end of verse 12. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The positive teaching of this grace is that we would live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We see those three characteristics. The word self-controlled, actually the Greek word, it's the same word used in verses 2 through 10. So Paul's using this word in a sense designing to recall the admonitions given in verses 2 through 10, encouraging Christians in practical areas of growth. So now he's recalling that and using that same word in this verse here. This word means to be, this word for self-controlled means to be sensible or sober-minded even. The call then to live upright indicates that a believer's conduct should be above reproach. One commentator writes that the adverb rendered upright denotes conduct that cannot be condemned. And then finally, the, the third aspect, we see the call to live godly lives. Once again, this is quite simply a call to live a life that is pleasing to God. Notice that these three exhortations given in verse 12 would encapsulate the, the three central elements of Christian living. A Christian's own heart and mind, that would be uh, encapsulated with the phrase of being self-controlled. A Christian's relationships with others, this would uh, encompass the word upright. This deals with your relationship with others, with the outside world. And then finally, a Christian's personal walk with God. This is living godly lives, living pleasing to God. Finally, he finishes verse 12 with this last adjectival phrase in the present age, describing where these characteristics are to play themselves out. That's, that's supposed to happen now. That's supposed to be on display here for the world to see that there's a tangible difference in your life. As Christians, we're called to be a salt and a light to a dark and tasteless world. And so in this way, there should be something tangibly different about your life in comparison with the lives of the unsaved world. I think Paul really is in this passage getting to the heart of what a true follower of Christ is. And as you think of a true disciple of Christ, I think you could simplify it in this way. A true disciple of Christ is one who loves Christ supremely. This call to be a follower of Jesus is a call to radical commitment, radical life-altering commitment. A call to take up a cross and follow Jesus. I think in our culture, we lose the power of that illustration. The early church here, when they're told to take up a cross, they know very well what a cross symbolizes. 
a symbol of Roman brutality. You cross us, this is what happens to you. And Christians are called to live that way daily. Take up a cross and follow him. That's different. The world doesn't understand that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. To the unsaved world, this message doesn't make sense. It's a call to forsake everything and follow Jesus. I think of the rich young ruler. We see him in, in the three gospel accounts. He runs to Jesus. We see he's eager. He's fervent. He's respectful as he kneels before Jesus and refers to him as the good teacher. And he asks him, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus responds, keep the law. It's pretty simple. Obey all the rules. And in this innocent confidence, the rich young ruler replies, I've done all these things, all the laws you've mentioned. I've kept them all from my youth. Jesus tells him he needs to go sell everything and follow him. Jesus' message of the gospel is never one of easy believism. It's a call to radical commitment. Forsake everything and follow me. And Luke records that disheartened by this saying, the young man went away sad because he's extremely rich. He can't let go. The command to live out these characteristics in the present age should be a convicting one for us. How often do we do this? How often is the transformation that grace has had on our lives on display for the unsaved world around us? So with this in mind, Paul is not only speaking to where these things should be carried out, I think he's also referencing that there's this present age that these things should be taking place in, but there's also a coming age. Paul then begins to unfold this idea in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul now describes the eager expectation that genuine believers have as they look forward to the second coming of Christ. Waiting for our blessed hope. True believers who have been genuinely transformed by grace expectantly await the second coming of Christ. The idea of biblical hope is not like the idea of worldly hope. Oh, I, I hope that this will happen. I hope that my team will do well this year. That's not the idea here. This actually, I, this idea of biblical hope carries the idea of an eager expectation because God never lies. Then we see what are we awaiting? Well, we're awaiting that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. With this phrase, Paul now begins to describe what we as believers expectantly await in the second coming. In this phrase, though, there's some grammatical questions that should be addressed. Uh, what seems to be a straightforward verse has actually been the subject of much theological debate over the years. The main question of this verse is really, do we consider the phrase of God and Savior? How do we, how do we deal with this? Is this referring to two separate entities of the Trinity, or is this simply uh, referring to Jesus and referencing his deity as part of the Godhead? 
as we consider this idea, first the sentence structure here would seem to indicate both words are descriptive of Jesus. You can simply see this, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It simply, in this respect, just reads as if both of these titles are being given to Jesus. Secondly, we realize that actually in the ancient world, it was not uncommon uh, to, even, even among pagan cultures, to refer to their gods as a God and a Savior. And so in this sense, for this audience, it would have made sense that they would have interpreted this in this way, as both of these words were being used as descriptors of Jesus' name. Finally, Jesus' name appositionally within the text would indicate that both of these words are being used descriptively of Jesus. This is a clear reference to the deity of Christ. It's one of the few that we have in the New Testament from the New Testament authors, but that's exactly what this is. The New Testament readers would have picked up on that. They would have understood that well. So having now established the deity of Christ in this way, Paul now further discusses the role of Jesus on behalf of a believer by referencing in more detail the sacrifice and saving work of Christ. He continues in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Paul's beginning verse 14 saying, who gave himself for us. He's clearly referencing Jesus's work on the cross, but notice the language here. Nobody takes Jesus's life from him. He's not forced to do this. He willingly gives it up. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't stop here though. Paul then discusses the two functions of Jesus' work on the cross, the first of which is to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is referencing justification. The moment of your salvation, you are redeemed from all lawlessness. This is talking about the instant of salvation. And so justification would be the theological word that we would use to describe that. And in some ways, Paul's uh, really coming full circle here, reminding us that Christ's work of redemption on the cross should produce tangibly different living. Those who have been truly born again are no longer bound by the power of sin. And then the second function would encapsulate the idea, the theological idea of sanctification. The process that should be gradually going on after the moment of justification. The second function of Jesus' work on the cross is to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This word purification actually carries the idea of cleansing by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice. Clearly, purification by blood under the Old Covenant, this is a major factor. And so Paul here is using Old Testament imagery to communicate these truths to an audience who's now living under the New Covenant. He's using this idea to communicate to these believers who may not fully understand how this looks, how this practically works out. In fact, I think the the message of this passage can be heavily seen in Ezekiel, actually. The prophetic book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 23. I'll read that. You don't have to turn there, but this passage says, They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. And even at the end there, you notice they will be my people. He's doing this work of redemption to have a people set apart for himself. We see that in the end of verse 14. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
These people who have been bought back from their sins are now identified by their desire to walk in righteousness. This phrase could actually be translated, who are eager to do what is good. The word for zealous here is actually the Greek word zelotis. It's defined as a fervent or even militant proponent of something. Could you define yourself that way? I'm a fervent or a militant proponent of good works. Prior to justification, prior to your salvation, you couldn't be. But now, by grace, you should be daily. This verse is completely tied together by this concluding thought here in verse 14. This whole passage is really wrapped up in this one verse. Having been redeemed and purified by Christ, we're now able to be zealous for good works. Where formerly being dead in our sins, such an exercise would have been impossible. So as we conclude this section, Paul has given his readers a biblical framework for the doctrine of soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. And he's expertly applied this doctrine to practical Christian living. True conversion should be marked by changed living. So as Paul draws this section to a close here, he leaves Titus with a strong exhortation to teach these things. And a command to let no one disregard him. I think even as we read this passage, verses 11 through 14 flow together very naturally. And then you kind of have this broken off segment of verse 15, which kind of seems out of place in some ways. Where does this come from? Paul's instruction to declare or teach these things is a strong imperative to Titus. Of course, he's encouraging him, Titus, you need to teach these things. But he's also saying, Titus, teach these things. This message that I've given to you, this should be what you're teaching. Don't lose focus of this message. Once again, we see a, a very similar command given to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul instructs Timothy to preach the word and then to correct, rebuke, and encourage. In this passage, you see Paul write, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. This is a very similar command in this way. He's telling him to teach these things, but he's also reminding him, don't lose sight of the message. Keep the main thing the main thing. Then he tells him to exhort and rebuke with all authority. So what exactly is Titus to be declaring? The following phrase actually sheds some light in this regard. In his additional instruction to exhort and rebuke with all authority, Paul repeats this Greek word for rebuke, it's the same word used in Titus 1.13. So he repeats that exact same word here. And in some ways, this gives us some insight into what exactly Titus should be declaring. Is he supposed to declare verses 11 through 15? Or what, what exactly should be his message? So because of the repetition of this word, it's safe to assume that everything given to Titus from Titus 1.10 through the end of chapter 2 was included in the command to declare these things. Interestingly, the words exhort and rebuke encapsulate two of the primary functions of Titus as a pastor. He's told to exhort those who are doing well in these things, but also to rebuke those who are not obeying in these areas. Finally, we see, he says, let no one disregard you. Clearly, this is a strong statement from Paul that carries the meaning of being intimidated by no one. 
Once again, this statement is strikingly similar to the command given to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. We recognize the command given to Titus is lacking that youthful element of it, but Titus is very likely still a young man. And so this command is given to him to encourage him, don't shy away from the bold proclamation of truth. That's the idea here. Paul aims to ensure that Titus does declare the things that he's given him in this book. So this passage, as we conclude, is foundational to both Christian theology and practical Christian living. It provides Christians with a clear understanding of salvation by grace through faith, but also makes clear that true conversion leads to genuinely transformed living. Commentator Hayne Griffin writes, the highest and purest motivation for Christian behavior is not based on what we can do for God, but rather upon what God has done for us and yet will do. The false teachers in Crete believe that their works can earn favor with God. And so Paul's aim through this passage is clear. Salvation is by grace through faith and that saving grace is what enables us to be zealous for good works. As humans, this runs completely contrary to everything that we believe. The the idea that we could be given something for free just doesn't sit well with us. Maybe it's an American mindset. I don't know exactly. But this idea here of the gospel runs completely contrary to that. Grace is given as a gift from God. And grace is what enables you to do good works. Paul makes that clear through this passage. So are you actively engaged in the process of sanctification that starts at the moment of conversion? Are you zealous for good works that can only be done with God's grace? Once again, the mark of a true disciple of Christ is a life that is clearly transformed by grace. So today, as we conclude, if your life has never been transformed by the power of saving grace, then we would encourage you today to turn in repentance, put your faith in Jesus for salvation. For those that would claim a relationship with Jesus, I would challenge you today from this passage to consider today that if your life reflects the message presented here, would that be descriptive of your walk with God? If not, it can be. By God's grace, may we strive to see our salvation actively working to change us more into the image of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.